I'm Brenda Darden Wilkerson, and welcome to another episode of Be The Way Forward. Today, we're talking about how technology is not always equal. Much of it is still inaccessible for many people. So how can we make sure there's equal access to internet and online connectivity? That's a question that today's guest, Dr. Fallon Wilson, has been working to solve. Why does it matter that all students should have computer science in their high schools with paid professionals and an annual budget at the state level? Why is that essential? Because you level the playing field for communities and for schools who cannot afford it. Alan Wilson is currently the Vice President of Tech Policy at Multicultural Media, Telecom, and Internet Council. She's also the brilliant co-founder and principal investigator of Black Tech Futures Research Institute. She works extremely hard to strengthen the tech ecosystem nationwide, and our conversation today explores why that is so very important. Here it is. Well, Dr. Fallon, I, Dr. Fallon Wilson, um, I'm so excited to get to speak with you today and to get our audience an opportunity to just hear about all of the wonderful work that you're doing. Uh, I'm excited to have you share uh, what might be a little different perspective uh, for some. Um, but you've got you've done so many things uh, throughout your career, but now I'd love for you to share what it is that you're focused on right at this moment. Um, I wear two hats. Number one, thank you for having me. Um, I, I've, I've been a longtime fan of yours for a while from afar. Um, not only of your work that you've done in Chicago um, and your envisioning of a CS movement that's fully inclusive, but also the amazing work you do at Anita B. So oh, thank you. This is a bit of a fangirl moment for me. <laughs> um, I wear two hats. Um, nationally, I'm the vice president of policy at the Multicultural Media Telecom Internet Council where I get to talk and, and, and work at a national level on developing policy to support digital futures for Black people in this country. Um, we do that through working with African-American churches. Um, about three years ago, we launched Black Churches for Digital Equity, where we look at how community anchor institutions are essential to address the digital divide. I am also the co-founder of Black Tech Futures Research Institute, where we work locally within municipalities and states and cities to assess their city's ability to create thriving Black tech ecosystems, but also who are the community anchor institutions that can build an AI liberatory future for Black people. And for us, those institutions are HBCUs, which are historically Black colleges and universities, as well as faith-based institutions, and also Black women. You have no future for Black people in this country if Black women are not there leading it, creating it, and trying to build support systems around Black women public interest technologists in this country um, to do great work. And so I like to think that we build the infrastructure for futuring for black people. And that that sounds awesome. And there's so much there that we could get into and, and break it down. Um, you know, I first of all, I, I'm intrigued uh, about the you know the key focus that you just put on black women. Can you talk a little more about that? Oh my God. Let's get into it all as right. two beautiful black women. That's right. Um I 
in every historical moment of change, in every movement that was impactful for democracy, Black women have always been at the forefront of doing the work. Whether we're thinking about the suffrage movement and the work there, whether we're thinking about the civil rights movement or a second wave feminine, we have always been doing the work of movement and change. Um, and we and we embody institutions where we're not often selected as the leader, but yet we are the ones doing the work. And so when I think about who's building this new world of a who who's building this world that's building a tech ecosystem that is responsive to people and how in particular how black people live their lives it's black women it's people it's it's the national stars we love and know from timid um all the way over timid all the way over to what joy has done yes. when it comes to facial recognition, mm-hmm. all the way over to the work that Dr. Ruha Benjamin has yes. done with her with her understanding the, the racial politi- policies and politics of coded biases and, and various types of data infrastructures that we're creating to, to surveil. And so we have those lum- luminous Black women, but we also have Black women who are on the ground within cities, literally trying to figure out how do I get computers in the hands of children who can't afford it? Or how do I figure out, how do we do remote learning, yes. right? During a pandemic, when our children don't have internet at home, mm-hmm. but yet it's always black women doing the work. And so for us, we see them as institutions. And with institutions, you you figure out how to build capacity for them. You put resources in them. Hopefully you put them in an environment where they can scale and grow. Um, and so trying to figure out who are the Black women public interest technologists in this country across different um, dimensions, right, mm-hmm. of what this tech ecosystem is and how can we best support them? Right. Whether they are leading the digital equity dollars at their municipal or their state level or whether they're battling and doing hearings on the Hill, trying mm-hmm. to get tech companies to not just sell us to the highest um, yeah. highest automated build, build, bidder, yeah. right, in, in, in the new world that they're trying to create. And so, yeah, it's one of our tenants. You don't have a future. There is no Black tech future without Black women. Well, I, I would tend to agree there is no future um, without the amazing work that we do and the resilience that we always bring to the table. Right. And, you know, I also want to lift up, you know, one of the things that we like to do at anitav.org is talk about and name the women in our past that mm-hmm. most people don't know anything about, you know, who right. were the ones that were creating the things that we all depend on and, and expect that they're normal. I always like to lift up Gladys West, uh, right. her work around geospatial measurement. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to get in a car without at least my phone telling me where Right. To go or even walking in a strange town, you know, if I'm traveling, I pull out my phone and figure out where I'm going. And that's so commonplace now. We don't think about it at all. Right. Uh, but that's a big deal. Right. And that right. was a black Huge. woman. Uh, when you think about the space race and NASA and all of those black women who were doing those calculations and, right. you know, helping to shorten the war, um, right. you know, saving actual lives. Right. Mm-hmm. And many of us, 
never got to meet any of them because they died before anybody got around to talking about them. And still, it's amazing to me when I mention people like Marion Croak with her 202 Mm -hmm. patents synonymous with voice over IP. And they're like, oh, you know, (laughs) no, you know, she's a she's a real woman walking around having contributed in ways to our lives. Can you imagine what life would be like without VOIP? Right. So um, it's it always makes sense to um, talk about our heroes, talk about our history. And, and your great work is is making a place for that. So so thank you so much for it. No, no not a problem. But I also like to go a little further back. I would also add when we think about data science or data scientists, yes. I always think about Ida B. Wells Absolutely. and her ability to develop a type of data set to talk about lynching yes. and lynching of black bodies, right? And what does that yes. look like? And what are the policy implications for it? Yeah. I think black people have always, I think with every new type of tool to tell story or a new type of technology mm-hmm. to tell narrative, mm-hmm. we have always been at the forefront of, of crafting our story and trying to show this is injustice, right? I feel like injustice right. necessitated technology for us. Right. Unlike so many other people where technology is like, oh, I just want to do something It's a fun cool. thing. It's a fun yeah, thing Yeah, but for, for, for many historically marginalized right. communities, it is out of necessity. It is out of survival. Um, it is out of, it's out of liberation. And so we take these things on. But yes, I always love to speak the names. So excellent. So um, you and I crossed, sort of crossed paths, or maybe we just missed each other uh, at a a place called the Black Tech Mecca here in Chicago, um, where you worked to develop uh, the the beginnings of your work that you now do around an index for the ecosystem that is inclusive of Black and Brown people. You know, so first of all, thank you for that work. And I would love to hear you share more about you know what it was that you were shooting for and 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 what you hoped that that work would bring why do ecosystems matter oh my god it is like when you say what uh, how do you end white how do you know no how do you end white supremacy right and everyone was like oh all you have to do is have people sitting around the table and if we're all sitting around the table then we're all equal and then white supremacy is a thing of the past Lie. It's a lie. Because white supremacy is, is, is like air. It is everywhere, saturating, um, materializing, giving life to, right? And so in order to have, a, in order to be the system that is so pervasive and so everywhere, you have to look at the entire ecosystem that allows for certain communities to achieve in technology are to build tech futures, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think the reason why, yes, you have to see how everything is, in this ecosystem is feeding inequity, are feeding racial tech disparities, are feeding obstacles. Um, and so it's a systematic approach. First, you have to see the, the ecosystem, and then you have to understand how, how are these things working? Why does it matter that all students should have computer science in their high schools with paid professionals and an annual budget at the state level? Why is that essential? Because you level the playing field for communities and for schools who cannot afford it, right? 
And so, and, and, because how do you know what computer science is unless someone is teaching you? How do you know you want to go into it? Or when you go to secondary school or post-secondary school, when you don't have people that look like you. So you had it in high school, but then you go to a school and no one in the classes reflect your lived realities yeah. or they only think about it as disruption and not as social impact. All of these things create challenges and I know that I like to think that Black people and brown people in this country are ultimately resilient, and we are. Let, let me just say this. I know what resiliency is because I know the type of home I had to navigate. However, I am clear that there are systematic things that are within cities and within states that create challenges for Black and brown children and families and, and community members to thrive. And so our index looks at each of those. It looks at K through 12. And all of this, it looks at K through 12. It looks at sec, um, post-secondary. It looks at workforce development. It looks at tech entrepreneurship. And it looks at governmental policies. And all of this is based off of best practice research, lit reviews, you name it, our, just personal experience yes. in our ecosystem. Mm -hmm. and, and so we were able to develop an index. But one of the things we realized is that we could tell you the challenges in your city from this, but many of the mayors or the other people we have worked with, whether they were the chambers or whether they were actually black political leaders themselves, they're like, Fallon, this is so heavy. This is, you gave us a whole ecosystem of problems. And I'm like, yeah. And I, and I realized that people love doing episodic solutions for black people. They love to take a five-year tenure, like philanthropy, mm -hmm. Oh, we're gonna do five years of computer science for all. Yeah. And then when that five years is up, then mm -hmm. it is solved, the challenges are gone, and everybody now has computer science in our country. That's not how that works. Mm -mm. Oh my gosh, we're gonna talk about venture and capital for tech entrepreneurs. Only less than one percent of black people get it. We're gonna fix that. We're gonna do that for seven years. And we're going to make these investments. We're going to figure out the venture. We're going to think, think about angel investors. We're going to fix it all. And then after seven years, boom, 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 it's done. And so the type of solutions that we've had for Black people are always episodic, piecemeal, and they're never looking at how these things intersect. And I know why, because if you look at the price tag of what it means to fix a city, it gets us into conversations about reparations, because we need reparation dollars. And so one of the, and I'm, I'm going off on a tangent, but we do need reparation dollars. Yes, I, I don't understand why we don't I'm have not, reparation I'm not going to argue with you. But <laughs> it was heaviness. People were heavy. And so we built into our, our model that, you know something, in every city there's critical Black digital infrastructure organizations who are doing some level to address the challenges and the oppression that we see in our research. Whether that is a local mosque who has a public computing um, program or just a public computing center in their fellowship hall, whether it's a school district or an HBCU who has TRIO programs where they're doing um, upper bound, but also doing STEM education, whether it's a very vocal voting right advocate who understands that digital equity is important, there are always black people working on freedom in cities. And for us, they help improve the score of a city. So if we can identify those organizations in your city, it's a weighted points or weighted points 
against the disparities that we see. And part of that is also to show that number one, hope is always present, right? Um, but also to show that when we're thinking about all the historical investments, federal dollars that are coming down either for digital equity um, through the infrastructure bill or through the Chips and Science Act, these are the organizations you should be funding. These are the ones who will build an ecosystem. These are the ones who will always be present, even when philanthropy, private dollars, or government decides to move on to a new issue like AI, which is That's the golden cow here. That's true. Um, yeah, and, and so for us, the model is really about showing that we have always been what we have been waiting for. And if we could see that, if we could see within our cities and see within ourselves and our organizations, we could push the needle forward. And so the model is about showing that there's always hope in a city and there's always hope when there's Black joy. And we know Black joy exists because there are people always working for freedom for their communities. Um, and so that has helped have a lot of discussions on how you humanize. How do you humanize an index, right? How do you humanize disparity? It is, is, it is, it is through people and, and, showca and showcasing people's dreaming for themselves and for their communities. Because when you decide to develop a, a laptop program on the south side of Chicago or in Fifth Ward, Texas, in Fifth Ward, Houston, in Texas, you are dreaming of a future. You are, you, are, you are saying that this system will not keep your family and your community members from not having access. And, 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 and as Black people, this is my last point and I'll, and I'll stop, we, it has always been the dreaming space that, that we have always had. Resilience, I, I believe our resilience has always come from the dreaming space. Our, our ancestors saw we will be free before we could be free, right? And so even now, as we push against the intersectional challenges of this new moment of AI, Black people are always dreaming for freedom. And we wanted to put that in our model. I want to operationalize yeah. freedom and Black joy. And, and you can't do that without thinking about the people and their experiences and how they're working, even on shoestring budgets, to, to make hope happen. For their communities. I think the value of, of this conversation is to talk about measuring the, the experience of everybody mm. um, and not just not the experiences you. of the people who are centered, right? And so right. you've done that. You've, you've created metrics around it. And, and I think that's awesome. In your work at Black Tech Futures Research Institute, I'm sure that you're asking all kinds of questions that you come across some data that's probably pretty shocking, right? That people, if they knew, they they almost wouldn't believe it. Like, can you share some of that, some of those stats that of some things that really shouldn't be uh, that you found out in your data? Um, yes, what is deeply shocking, Brenda, is that 29% of Black people in this country don't have internet access. And to me, that is unacceptable. And also it's a little loaded number. It depends on how the census is, is counting what is the actual, actually what is internet access. Having a phone that has internet is not the same thing as having internet to your home. It's not. Being able to make it um, actually to do remote learning or to do remote work or even simply to even to do a book report, right? And so the way is, even that number is probably way higher than what it should be than what we are seeing. Um, in addition to that, 
the biggest issue, aha, uh-huh, this is one I can't say. It's anecdotal data, but I'm going to say it because someone's going to, I'm going to eventually do a study on it. When I look across predominantly Black cities in this country, whether it's Baltimore, whether it's Detroit, whether, whether, whether it's Birmingham, we have a notion that internet access is a challenge, but what we are woefully overlooking as a nation is that our, our, our people don't have computers. Literally no computers in their homes. So how are you going to work and live in around machines if you don't have a machine in your home? And I think, I think we have lost the conversation around device access, which is really scary for me because yet again, it is a, it becomes systemic inequity in this future AI world that we're building. And, and so it, if I say, go ahead, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Is it, just wanted to, to get a little bit of clarity. Do you see that that situation is worse in cities than it is rurally or is it the other way around? See, this is the thing. See, this is the, the fodder of, of spin doctors. There are black rural counties all across the South. Let me just say that the majority of black people in this country live in the South and in rural communities. The access issue around internet, the access issue around devices, the access around digital skills are equally seen in urban and rural communities. And I know sometimes we'd be like the urban cities um, of, of a Baltimore, it's like, well, clearly there's internet, there's a city, but you go to high poverty neighborhoods Census tracts where there's high poverty and an overlay of the percent of Black people that live with it, you will see that they don't own computers and they don't have any type of internet signal. Why is that? Because some of our amazing internet service providers do things that are not always helpful for communities as it relates to access and to speed. They may give a speed, you know, let me not get into my soapbox about speed and internet and data and being able to draw it down and it. Yeah. yeah well, but it's it. a fact anyway, right? So, and that's right. part of the and and part of what we've been talking about is 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 exposing um, these types of facts. And so, you know, again, thank you so much for your research because you know we need we need to know if right. we're going to make changes. Ideally, we would like to take our index and to do it on every major city, black city or city in this country, so we can have a national score. And so the work that I do or the work that our institute does is about, I, I, I like asking questions, which made me go to grad school, which made me get my PhD, because I love questions. I'm like, why doesn't that work for us? Who is making those decisions? How can I understand this phenomenon? And it's not because I like questions because of questions sake. I love being able to use them to hit people over the head with the information that I find. I am a researcher by, being a researcher by the secondary to me being someone who would like to get into people's faces and be like, I have proof you are wrong. (laughs) Or I have proof you built this to really keep black children from having internet. I have proof that you are building this new AI world with, I have proof because I think Part of the project of white supremacy or of these other systems is to gaslight you with all the oxygen around you to make you think that these things are not happening. And so looking at this new world and the intersection of all of these conversations, now we're having about AI because I'm going to jump there. 
I just think it's, it makes me angry. I am so tired of AI. I feel like Fannie Lou Hamer. I am sick and I am tired of AI. I'm tired well, of more. AI. So why? So talk, talk about why. I am tired of it because I, let me just say this, for all of my amazing scholar friends, policymakers, technical geniuses who are building this moment and who are creating the policies for transparency, who are pushing against companies, I appreciate your service. It is an act of service. However, it is not the only thing in the world that's happening. It is because for me, we have a moment to address the digital divide in this country. I mean, literally, we could wipe it out with $65 billion of federal funding that came in the infrastructure bill. But I can't get the progressive, and I'm not even going to talk about the conservatives. Actually, they're more likely to listen to me about broadband in their rural communities in the South than Black folks, but that's a whole other discussion. I can't get progressive organizations, public interest tech organizations, philanthropy, progressive philanthropy to say, wait, maybe we really should be looking at how these states are using and creating digital equity plans. Maybe Dr. Wilson is right. If we can get this right, give internet to everybody in their state, irrespective if they are in a poor neighborhood, a rural neighborhood, an urban neighborhood, and if we can get devices in their homes and then give the and give computer science all to all of our kids, then we have a foundation for a digitally literate population, populace, and then maybe they can build data sets and machines and algorithms in the future that will help make more inclusive our future of AI. What I'm simply trying to say is there is such fandom around AI, whether it's the companies pushing doom, gloom, joy, whether it's government and progressives trying to regulate and transparency, but no one is understanding that even if you create the best policy to manage and to legislate companies, you still what a, you, people still have to live in that world you've created. So what? So what's the solution? How do we, I mean, obviously these are problems that we've had for a very long time. How do we get policymakers to put in some of this infrastructure? What is, what do you think? I mean, I know, I think we can, we've talked about what some of the barriers are, but what, what is the leverage that we can bring to bear um, so that, you know, the next time we get together in a year or five years from now, we're not talking about the same things that we've made progress. I mean, it, it and, and, and Brenda, you know this because you have done community work and you continue to do it. It is, I am a woman of faith. And there's a a, 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 a sentence in, a, in, in our faith tradition that I love to say to answer questions like this in particular. Um, it says, God will use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And I love it because it really makes plain what the issue is. It is, every, it is simple. Get people in a room, educate them about what is happening. I promise you, it, it, I don't need millions of dollars to do that. I need time 
And I need a type of civic tech education that will help people to understand what is happening. Because my thing is, I, I think someone asked me a couple of months ago, Dr. Wilson, after you do all of this and this work of a national black tech ecosystem, um, yeah, people, you want everyone to think like you? I was like, no, I don't care about that. I'm a Leo. Let me just say, I love for people to do what I say. It is a whole thing for me. Um, but no, I know that I've done the work when people are able to choose not to listen to me anymore. To say that, ah, oh, you're just worried about these robots. I like them. Because you want to know why? They clean my yard, Fallon. I mean, and I would be okay with it. Because, but, but then I knew we have done so much work to make people digitally literate. Mm-hmm. And it, it mm-hmm. is, you know, whether, you know, there's a bunch of theories. We can get in them at some point or it's in, a, in another conversation about why do you want a population illiterate? Well, why? I mean, that's we full stop, right? So, it, it, but I wonder, do you think that uh, that is the conclusion that that they come to do you think that's what they think is happening or or is it about priorities what what is it that that you think brings us here and i think even more importantly as we have a really technical um focused uh activated audience listening what oh, can God. we do what okay. can we do because we want to see we're thinking people, we're uh, computing people, we we know how to make change in, in our various areas of expertise, but nothing is more important than the future that we live um, as, as citizens wherever we live. So what would you say are things that the people listening could do? I mean, I would say the easy things, pay attention to the National Science Foundation why? Because the National Science Foundation is one of two agencies that have gotten billions of dollars yes. to build the infrastructure of our future. The Department of Commerce in particular, um, the Economic Development Administration, they all got billions of dollars to create either tech hubs or tech engines. Why is that super important to all the technical people who are listening to this amazing podcast they are going to be sites. They're, our country has said, we're bringing everything home, which is why we have the Chips and Science Act. And we're going to lead in these, key, in these 10 key technology focus areas. And, and so they gave all of these funds to designate these spaces in different communities. And technically, if these engines become what they are supposed to be, they are going to generate over the next 10 to 15 years, new jobs and new businesses. It, in some ways, it will be the infrastructure that all of the policy making around AI will rest upon. My issue and my challenge to those who are listening is to understand who's a part of those conversations, who is a part of leading the conversation around tech hubs in your city, who, which universities, because let me just say this, and NSF will be okay, because, you know, I'm, I'm going to support, I'm going to work with them. Out of all of the research institutions in this country that were designated as engines across this country to build this future of infrastructure for the future of policy and AI, right? There's only one minority serving institution out of all the 45 of them. Jackson State University, and they're doing an innovation around food security. 
But every other, whether it's a tribal college, whether it's a Hispanic serving institution, none of them are leading these engines. To me, that's a problem. Because even if our amazing policymakers, all the amazing Black women that you know I love that we just talked about earlier, even if they get the policy right, it's not going to land locally because you don't have inclusion and diversity at the foundation of the building of what these policies will rest upon. And so if you're listening, figure out where your engine is, because they're they're all across the country now. Um, you can just go to the National Science Foundation and see where they're located and, and see exactly who's a part of those conversations. The second thing I would say is every state in this country has to create a digital equity plan. Not only a plan, they have to create an infrastructure plan on how do you gonna give internet to all of the places in your state that don't have it. Because let me tell you, see, the good white folks know where this is going. They know that between the Infrastructure Act and the CHIPS Act, they are building us all the way to space on these types of things. However, when you look at the plans, they should include organizations and chapter folks like people who are from Anita B. Y'all should be in these plans. Why? Because you do the work to support women in technology in these spaces. But if you're not in the plan, how do you get the funding? And so let's just say there are ways for you to intersect at the state level on all of these issues because they're getting millions and multi-millions of dollars just to create a plan. And then they're going to need people to build out what they said. And that's where also economic development comes into these conversations. But let me just say this. We don't have the reason why I pick on AI like I do is because it, it blocks out of the conversation. It blocks out what I'm just telling you now. People are running so quick. We got to save humanity. But humanity is on the ground like I want to eat now. I want to sleep now. I would like a new I would like a new job near this engine or I'm a researcher with innovation. And if I'm a part of it, maybe there's a vertical out for me to grow my own. We are not talking about how we're building the ground. And yet again, in the next five years, to your point, Brenda, we'll be having this exact same conversation because I can't get people to see the floor and the ground, well, I, which is know, always the case. So I, I and I totally understand the perspective of the challenges and the differences between who's looking in which direction and who's right. not dealing with the, uh, the the needs of everyday people. But again, I right. think that's where, you know, you started out by talking about the the power of, of the people who are doing the work in the cities. Right. And, you know, I just want to also congratulate you and, and just kind of bring forward uh, to our listeners another really important part of this, which is, is so obvious when you mention it, right? The things that matter, if you aren't measuring them, then you can't address them. And right. so I think an important part of what you've done with your work is you have defined metrics that were missing. Um, and, and, and now you're encouraging people to actually track those metrics. And, and in like ways uh, at anitab.org, when we work with companies, uh, we ask them to disaggregate their data and maintain numbers about those disaggregated numbers. And, and another thing that I feel like uh, is a good thing to share in this space is people like to to disregard what they call small numbers and say, well, that's mm -hmm. those are outliers, right? 
Um, But, you know, there are things that are very specific around small, small numbers that are representative of whole swaths of people. So it's really kind of changing the way the the way we look at the data that we gather and the way we gather it. So you so again, you know, if you're talking to this this audience out here, how can they encourage their policymakers? And at this point in, in our sort of polarized society, What's the best? What's the best level? Do you think to go after? Is it the feds? Is it state? Is it city? Where should our voices really, you know, concentrate? I would because I know because I know your crowd is probably high technical. I would venture to say I want you to talk to our policymakers. Um, I know. I talk to our policymakers um, in particular. I will love, I know that Travis Moore has this organization called Tech Congress, which I love. I, I love it. I think it's great. However, when you look at historic, not historically black colleges in the university, when you look at the Congressional Black Caucus or the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, those innovation fellows are not are not are not placed with those with those policymakers, with 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 our elected officials. It is not because they have not tried. I don't know. I don't know how they do the match. But I'm sure it's because of the committee assignments of our of, of our elected officials who represent us. Why is this significant? Our Congress folks can't create legislation that they don't understand. That they too, they, we have a translation problem there too, and we want it. And, and so, for me, if you are a technical person who also understands race and ethnicity, you should really volunteer some time to give some research, uh, some research data points, go and talk with your elected officials about how this is affecting the lived experiences of black and brown people in this country. Um, Help educate them. I think that's the first thing I would say. Secondly, there's go to your state. Every state now has a state broadband office where they're having to negotiate digital equity and internet access and digital skills. And I know people be like, well, Digital skills is just people understanding the computer. No, that's remedial. You give that to people that you just don't care about, in my opinion. Um, Digital skills is saying aspirationally, if you understood how to code, what would you create? You know, I am a, talk about questions. I love aspirational questions around technology and future for people of color in this country. Yes, you do not, yes, you can't code yourself out of a paper box, but if you could, what would you do? How would you think? What would you feel? And that and that germinates all types of like data that we can talk about. How do you build future for people who who don't have technical skills? I ain't got no technical skills. I can't code nothing. <laughs> but I read and understand the world so I can translate it right. And I think that is that is the ultimate challenge: having a core people who are committed to translating the iterative technological advancements that will consistently come so that people can understand it and they will have freedom of choice to make decisions for themselves. Yes. Um, well, I, think I think that is the, the ultimate goal here. Well, and I think, you know, we spoke about this a little bit earlier, having technical education be ubiquitous, um, a- another core 
um, right. which is some of the work that we did in Chicago, which was at adding a new court, which, it, you know, really makes a lot of sense since most of the core subjects that children learn and are, are held to are about 200 years old. And it doesn't mean that we... You, we don't need those, but we need right. definitely need new ones, right? And so having an understanding of, of, of what's possible and not only what's possible out there, but what's right. possible that I can do. So you're obviously passionate for this industry. It's very <laughs> evident. So what led you to be so passionate about this work? I would say that it was a series of serendipitous um, moments. Um, my research, my PhD from the University of Chicago is specifically in looking at how do you create learning environments that are free of gender-based violence and sexual harassment so that Black girls in particular could thrive and achieve, right? And so I think most of my my, my, my upbringing and research or as a scholar was in gender studies or Black feminist studies which is a far way from where I am today. Um, I want to I tell people, just because you decide to do this, life will create opportunities. And either you walk through the door or you walk through the door and it changes what you think you're supposed to be doing. Um, I got into this work because I left Chicago and I was a little disenchanted because CPS wouldn't let me do my research in their schools because they didn't want to be sued because of sexual harassment, which I can understand. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. However, Nashville, Tennessee was like, oh, we're, we're yes, if you change it to gender-based bullying, that's what we're talking. Yeah. Methodologies matter, y'all. Let me just tell you. And also different sites will help you do your research. And so I moved there. And my godmother, who was a pastor there in Tennessee, said, well, if you're going to be here, you might as well teach at an HBCU. I was like, oh, OK. And 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 Brenda, you may know this. I don't you know, I want to like to always personify or, you know, things onto people who may not agree. But I was approached by the president and my godmother, who was the academic provost. Well, Fallon, you're young. You should teach our technology class. I was like, huh? <laughs> What? It does not compute <laughs> that I am, in their minds, I am young, so clearly I can teach a class about technology. Once again, my background and my dissertation, gender studies, feminist studies, but when you need a job and you need to feed yourself, you'd be like, well, I am a technologist today. <laughs> and so at that time, it was at the height of the Arab Spring where people were mobilizing using their smart devices, their mobile devices to topple dictators. And so that was profound and interesting to me. And our students love talking about our, that my phone could be used to do that, Dr. Wilson. And the light in the, the fire was being like stirred in the students. I was like, this is interesting. And then when I finally got my dissertation, the president of the college like, you really did good on that technology class because you're so young and youthful because clearly I could not have done it, Fallon. How about you come on and be our vice president of strategic and innovation? And I was like, my <laughs> title out of grad school? Well, does it, did it not come with the pay of the title? You learned that lesson. I've learned a lesson. Take the money too with the title, y'all. As a woman, do not let them screw you with a title without pay. But I took it and I was excited. And then at that point, I spent like six months of research. And at that point, President Obama was allowing 
institutions of higher education to redefine the Carnegie Credit Hour and work with boot camps and coding schools, coding schools, which is so funny. I have lived long enough to see, as you have shared, to see the, the ebb and flow of all of the things that have, coding schools was, was going to be the thing that was going to change right. everybody. Right. <laughs> that died out. Um, but But anyway, all that to say, I learned and began to see that technology was not just a, a tool, it was going to be a way of life for everyone. And then as a person of color in a city, when you do one thing right, and sometimes it is a blessing and a curse, city leaders begin to call on you to do all types of things. I was asked by the mayor's office uh, randomly, which is uh, not randomly, but they would say it was by design, to co-lead and to chair their smart city plan. I was like, me? Leo, that I am, me? And I'm just only a year out of getting my people. Didn't know what I was getting into. Had to quickly learn what smart cities were very quickly. And then I realized, but this is the, this is probably the God moment, the turning moment, the moment of faith. I realized then I was like, they are literally going to terraform cities with technology and data to really create these futuristic worlds that don't include us, but hyper-track us. Fear, worried. And then, yeah, then that led to, to me bumping around in every part of the ecosystem that our index is about. I have spent time there. I've, I've been able to see the, the ebbs and the flow and the challenges of K-12 STEM and STEAM. STEAM was a, oh my God, I feel so old. Um, and and see the ebb and flow of working within venture and tech entrepreneurship and see the and, and be able to tell the story that people always want to talk about Jesse Jackson. Y'all gonna have to talk about him at some point. We would not have diversity numbers in tech if he didn't True. go to Silicon Valley in 2014. Yes. He let's be clear, I he ain't know nothing about no AI. He ain't know nothing. He just knew that they did not have representation on their boards. Right. And that and, and and that a compromise, the beginning conversation, show me your numbers. That led to all types of diversity and inclusion types of programs, apprentice. Let's be give him his flowers because he didn't know that he would have such, I don't think he understood all of the things that would come from this moment. But 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 he was responsible. I could have been around that long, I tell that story. Um, all that to say, it is it has been serendipitous moments that have gotten me to where I am. And, and for me, it is just so funny to think about this. Um, it is the work that I was called to do, even though I would not have known it um, 15 years ago, which is very well, interesting. Well, I think we can both say that. <laughs> um, what you say? I think we can both say that. I think, you know, <laughs> it's interesting to be able to find the work uh, to that 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 your hand is found to do that needs to be done uh, to fill the gap. And I think that's part of how you started us off about, you know, some of us are in places making sure that the work that needs to get done gets done. And, right. and you know, I know we have a lot of listeners who are, are part and parcel of that and we've got a lot to do. So, uh, so are there conversations that we need to be having more of um, around, you know, thinking about the future and what we'd like to see that future look like in, in our communities and the work that you're doing? 
what what are the types of conversations that we need to be having? Dreaming. I want more dreaming. I I tell people all the time when donors decide they're not going to give to my institute or when people do persnickety things that keep us from advancing. It is in the company of my sisters where I have joy. It is in the company of my people and my family. I think we need more of that. I mean, if you're not going to give me the funding, do not obstruct my ability to organize and to be the people that look like me. I, I would simply say it is we need more conversations, safe and sacred spaces to heal and to think. Um, rest. Um, and rest does not mean sleeping. Rest means I don't want to always have to be figuring out how to solve the problems of white tech men. I don't want to always have to be on performing so that I can get funding to save my community. I need family because people like us who are always doing the work and have always done the work fighting. It's funny. I'm sorry. This is off slightly off your, your question. I tell people recently if there were no tech disparities in this world, I would be an artist. If there were no challenges in this world, I would be a playwright. If, if I didn't have to think about always saving people that look like me from the detriments of both the seen and the unseen and the coming and the none, I would spend my days just writing and, and painting. Yeah, but I think you said something earlier about we're the, you know, we're the ones we've been waiting on um, and that work has to be done. And I could say that across a, a broad range of concerns that probably, you know, are present with our audience. Right. And the reason why we have these conversations is to encourage is encourage ourselves around the work that we do, because many times it's the very experiences that we have that are missing from the consideration where the tech is being created. Um, if your experiences are not there, if they're not counted, and, you know, Dr. Wilson has put together an index and metrics with where we can gather experiences that might have been left out. And, and for that, we are, you know, we don't even know how to be grateful yet because we haven't, you know, I think that the impact is nascent, right? We, we've yet to see what will come. So I kind of want to end on this question. What is the future? If you think about Black tech future, what is the future that you hope to see? To build a national and global Black tech ecosystem. I think in my old age, as I age, because I'm aging too, bodies and let me just say, age is, is how do you say it? It humbles everybody. There's humility to be had <laughs> with age. Let me just say that. Um, and so with that, I think I've become sometimes more Pan-African. Um, I think the African diaspora is probably what we should be thinking about. So we are what we have been waiting for. I think there is many, I think the future of Black Tech Futures is will be global. Um, I think that there are challenges and opportunities to build a type of, I, I joke with people, it, but it's fun because people people can understand it, a type of Wakanda um, that is that is the diasporic. And I think that there are thinkers and leaders who are trying to figure that out across the Caribbean 
um, across countries in Africa, um, here in the U.S., and also in other parts where we have large majorities of, of Black people who, you know, who were forced to leave their their, their various homes and all those things um, many, 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 many years ago. Um, and I think, yeah, I just think the, and, 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 and as the New York Times has said, the future is Africa, let's listen, which is a little scary because I was recently on a congressional, um, well, not recently, this time last year, part of a congressional delegation. Um, and we were, we visited the EU. We went to Germany because Germany is the largest um, economy in Europe. And we had discussions and conversations. And consistently, the solution of those countries all hinged on a relationship with an African country. Um, whether it was exporting um, items needed for energy, whether it was exporting things needed for their smartphone, it was a whole litany. And as one of the few people of color on this delegation, I sat there saying, it is deeply scary to think about the colonial project in AI or the colonial project um, and racism. It is deeply unsettling to me. Um, but all that to say, the future for me, I see it being a, a global Black tech ecosystem driven and created and envisioned by people who often are overlooked in the dreaming phase of this space, the, the wonderment and play of this space. But they will be the ones that will humanize and make it democratic as we've always done. So, yeah. Well, I can't wait. And so I just want to thank you so much for being here with us today on Be The Way Forward. We um, have learned so much and I look forward to the next time that we can get together and see how the work has progressed. So thank you, Dr. Wilson. Thank you so much. So enjoyed it. I want to thank Dr. Fallon Wilson again for speaking with me on this episode of Be The Way Forward. If you enjoyed our conversation, then follow Be The Way Forward wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can also watch video episodes of this podcast on the AnitaV.org channel on YouTube. For more information on how you can be the way forward, head on over to AnitaB.org. Be The Way Forward is produced by Dominique Ferrari and Paige Heimsen. Sound design and editing by Neil Ines and Ryan Hammond. Mixing and mastering by Julian Kwasniewski. Associate producer is Faith Krogalecki. Executive produced by Dominique Ferrari, Stacey Book, and Avi Glajanski for Riveter Studios and Frequency Machine. Hosted and executive produced by me, Brenda Darden-Wilkerson for AnitaB.org. Podcast marketing from Lauren Fassell, and Ariel Nissenblatt with Riveter Studios and Tink Media in partnership with Carolyn Sneller and Coley Boucher at anitab.org. For more ways to be the way forward, visit anitab.org.